The reading from verse 23 down to verse 27. The word of God where it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, uh, we ask that as we study your word that you would help us to listen to Jesus and to respond to him rightly. Help us to test ourselves and examine ourselves to see whether we are in the truth. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know uh, about you, but sometimes it feels to me as though life is a bit of a riddle. You know, you've got to make up your mind about so many different things and you can never work out what the best thing to do is and what the, you know, the worst thing to do is. And you, you just seem to go round and round in circles all the time trying to work out what the best option is. And then sometimes life doesn't seem like a riddle and actually what you need to do is perfectly clear. It's 100% clear. You know what to do. And the question's not, what should I do? But what am I going to do about this truth? Am I going to actually respond to it? Am I going to know what I know I should do? And that's what Jesus is really doing here in this passage that... uh, Ben read, and we're going to read a bit more of it as we go through, but what Jesus is doing in this passage is challenging us to think about how we've responded to the truth. The truth is there. Blind Freddy could see, uh, can see that who Jesus is, but how are we going to respond? Just to set the scene of what's going on, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. He rode in on the donkey and uh, everyone was hailing his arrival as, uh, as God's promised Messiah. And he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables of the, of the merchants and, uh, who are cluttering up the, uh, the courts of the temple. And as this episode begins, the religious leaders of the day, the temple authorities, are asking Jesus... Who does he think he is in turning those tables over? Who does he think he is in kind of ransacking the temple? Jesus uh, answers their question with his own question. He asks, was John's baptism, John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or from men? 
Uh, and the religious leaders, uh, being cunning and clever, they decide not to answer the question because they know that both answers will back them into a corner. John's baptism uh, pointed to Jesus. Uh, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's baptism pointed to uh, Jesus who would bring the Holy Spirit of God and wash people from sin. And so if these religious leaders say, Yep, John's message is from God, then they're saying that they need to respond to Jesus. But if they say that John's message is from just from human beings, then all their, you know, kind of studious followers will go, you guys are crazy, what do you think you're doing? Because anyone could see that John's message was from God, that John was a prophet. You see, sometimes the truth is staring us in the face. And the question is not what's right and what's wrong, but what am I going to do about it? And so Jesus tells these three parables that we're going to go on to read bit by bit to confront people like the Pharisees and maybe like you for whom truth is right in front of them but they just won't do anything about it. So the first parable that Jesus tells is in verse 28. Look at verse 28. We'll read that. Jesus says, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. I think most of us, if we're honest, will know what it's like to say yes to something and then not follow through on it. Uh, it happens all the time, doesn't it, in our lives? We say, uh, someone says, oh, would you mind doing this for me? Yep, yep, I'll do it. And then they come back to us a week later and they go, now about that thing that uh, you said you'd do, I say, oh, that's right. And we pretend that we've forgotten, but actually it's because we couldn't be bothered maybe, or maybe it is because we've forgotten. But Jesus says that that's what people, some people do with God. They say yes, and then don't do anything about it. And this parable of Jesus drives right to the heart of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day, the religious people. They trumpeted loudly that they followed God, but when John comes showing the way to God is through Jesus, these people didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Some people say yes to God on the one hand, but they live out a life which says no. And Jesus says that people who do that, no matter what they say, no matter the words that they use, 
Those people actually miss the kingdom of heaven. They actually miss Jesus. Maybe you are an empty yes uh, person. Uh, if you are here last week, you might remember that comic. There was the guy who was wearing the, the T-shirt, I love Jesus. But actually when Jesus said, give up everything that you have and come follow me, the guy said, Duh, you're just a legalist, Jesus. Some people trumpet their love for Jesus but then live a life that denies that. Well, how do you test yourself to see whether that's where you're at? How do you know if you're an empty yes person? I think a good question to ask is, has following Jesus, has saying yes to Jesus, changed your life in any way? Has saying yes to Jesus changed your life? Saying yes to Jesus may have changed the way that you use your money. But then again, saying yes to Jesus may have made no difference at all to the way that you use your money. You use your money the same way today as you did before you said yes to Jesus. It's exactly the same. There's no difference. Saying yes to Jesus may have changed the things that you love. Uh, You used to resent people in the church, but now you love them. And even though you have nothing in common with them, nothing at all except the gospel. But then again, maybe saying yes to Jesus has not changed at all the things that you love. You love the same things as you did before you said yes to Jesus. The same sins stir your heart as much now as they did before. Some people say yes to God, but then live a life that says no. And then Jesus says there are also other people who everybody thinks are the scum of the earth, the losers, the outcasts, the the, the people who've always said no to God, but who suddenly turn around and who run to Jesus. The prostitutes and the tax collectors were those outcasts in Jesus' day. And Jesus says, they listened. They heard what John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they, they'd always said no. And now they turned, they turned from their prostitution, they turned from their extortion and their stealing, and they fled to Christ. It's one of the great privileges uh, in life, isn't it, I think, to see a lifelong no person turn and love Jesus, you know, to see someone who has been a staunch atheist for 10 or 20 years, uh, you know, and they turn and they flee to Jesus, or to see the kid who's been in and out, of, grown up and messed up life, in and out of jail, and he turns around, puts that all behind and hangs on for dear life to Jesus. Those are the people, Jesus says, who are in the kingdom. Not the people who say yes and who wear Christian T-shirts, but people who say yes 
and who follow through on that, who take up their cross and follow Jesus. You might have said no to Jesus for so long that you worry that there's no way back. But the remarkable thing is, is that this parable is exactly about you. People who've always said no, and yet who Jesus welcomes back with open arms. It doesn't matter what you've been or what you've done. What matters is that you turn around and stop walking away from Jesus and start running towards him. This parable of Jesus is both a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because a lifetime of empty yeses counts for nothing. But this parable is also a blessing because a lifetime of no's can be turned from and forgiveness found. And in fact, even a lifetime of empty yeses can be turned from and grace found in Jesus Christ. So there are some people who trumpet yes, but live a life of no. But now Jesus moves on to uh, tell another parable to challenge us to examine whether we're responding to his truth. So read with me, look with me at uh, chapter 21 again from verse 33. And Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. He will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Imagine that you spent ages making something, creating something. Uh, You know, a house, maybe you spend years building dream house. Uh, or you spend years writing a book. Maybe that's, I'm the only one who has that dream. <laughs> but, but maybe that's your dream as well. Uh, or you spend 
years painting a picture or writing a song or uh, building a car or knitting a jumper. It might not be your life's work, but you love it and you've poured so much of yourself into it. And imagine that someone comes and steals it. How would you feel about that? And no matter how much you ask, you never get it back. Of course, some people do that every day. Uh, To musicians and to filmmakers who've poured their life into creative works and then we steal it from them. by stealing and copying their music. And Jesus says that the things that we do to other people are actually sometimes the same things that people do to God as well. And the same basic belief underlies stealing music and films and art and whatever else, stealing those things as does stealing from God. That is, we think that we have a right to own it Sure, isn't it? There's this belief that what somebody else has made ought to belong to us. Why is that? Why do we think that? It's not true, though, is it? God has made us, God has made our world, and because God is kind and loving, God's given us the world to look after and to enjoy. And to use it to serve him and to create things under him, to bring glory to him. God's done that out of kindness, but we think this world belongs to me. We think all that I am comes from me. I am a self-created being. I have made myself who I am. My life belongs to me. And God sends people along to say to to us, no, actually, the world belongs to me. The world belongs to God. And we're so deeply committed to owning our world and our lives that the messages that God sends, we beat them up and turn them away. The patience of God is staggering, like the Uh, patience of this vineyard owner is staggering. He builds this vineyard and he sends the messengers and when the first three get, uh, what is it, stoned, killed and beaten, instead of thinking to himself, now I'll get the army in and, uh, you know, take, take my land back, he goes, no, I think what I'll do is I'll send some more servants to go and get the, uh, to go and ask them for the land back or for, you know, just for the produce back. He sends them, no, they... They do the same thing again to the, to the next lot of messengers. And then, again, instead of going, no, I'll call in the army and you know, uh, wipe these guys out, instead of doing that, he says, no, now what I'll do is I'll send my own son. Surely they'll listen to my son. God sent prophet after prophet in the Old Testament. God sent them to us, that is to humanity, saying, hey, guys, this world belongs to God. And no one listened. 
And finally, God sent Jesus, his own son, into our world, and nobody cared. They just beat Jesus and crucified him. It's a kind of a shorthand way, if you like, of saying to God, we're not giving your world back. It belongs to us. Some people say one thing and mean another. But other people, Jesus says, according to this parable, just can't live with giving their world back to Jesus. They can't give it back. They can't give their life and their world back to Jesus. You might be in that camp. You might say, not in so many words, but God, you can't take, you won't take this world away from me. You won't take my life from me. You won't shift me from what I have and what I am and what I'm doing. You might not even, you might be so committed to that course of action, to that way of thinking, that actually you don't even care about whether the Bible is true or not. That's not even a question. So you don't even think, you know, did the prophets really prophesy about Jesus? Did Jesus really live? Uh, was Jesus really the Son of God? Did he die? Did he rise again? You don't even care about asking the question about whether that's true or not because you're so deeply committed to hanging on to your world. Or you might be drawn to Jesus. You might think, yeah, you know what? This guy is the Son of God, he's the Saviour of the world. He is kind and compassionate. He welcomes the outcast. He's everything that you could hope for in a saviour. And yet, be so committed to hanging on to your life that you still can't let go and follow Jesus. It's amazing that we, we always think that the people who reject Jesus are just people who don't believe that it's true, but actually there are some people, there were people in Jesus' time who knew who he was, believed who he was, accepted who he was, loved who he was, but couldn't give up their life. Think of the rich young ruler. Man, did he love Jesus. And <laughs> Jesus loved him. What do I lack? You know, I, I want to follow you, Jesus. What do I lack? Jesus said, sell everything, give it to the poor and come follow me. And he couldn't do it. But then there are other people, other people who have given up their world to God. People who have acknowledged that the world doesn't belong to them, their life doesn't belong to them, but belongs to Jesus. People, you know, who could have had anything that they wanted, anything in life that they, that they could have, uh, that anyone could want, they could have had it. They were successful. Whatever they set their mind to, they got. That, that didn't matter. People who chose instead to give everything that they could have to Jesus. People who declined promotions 
because they wanted to have time to keep serving in church. People have chosen to be on the outside, to be unpopular at school or unpopular at work or, you know, uh, unpopular in their family or at the footy club. People who chose to be on the outside because they'd rather be loved by Jesus than loved by the world. Even uh, for those people who truly love Jesus and follow him, even those people still have areas of their life that they struggle to surrender to Christ. But I think the difference is that when God exposes those areas, when he kind of brings them to light, those people give them up. It might be hard, you know, you might do it slowly, you might do it reluctantly, but when it comes to the crunch, you say to God, if you want this, it's yours, you can have it. It's a, so, you know, we hang on. But at the end of the day, they say, God, if you want this, you can have it. If you want to take my husband or my wife of 30 years, God, your wisdom's greater than my wisdom. And I trust you. Because I love you more than I love my world. And if you want to take my child that I have raised and that I love and that I can't imagine living without, I trust you. But maybe the most chilling reality of this parable of Jesus is that it's not the booze and the sex and the money and the power that get in the way of these religious leaders acknowledging God's ownership of their world. The thing that gets in the way of giving everything to Jesus is actually their religion. the thing which they thought would get them close to God was actually the thing that they couldn't give up and that was keeping them away from God. It's disturbing disturbing to think, I, I think, how easy it is for that to be true of us as well. That the very thing which we can't relinquish to God is the very thing that ought to be relinquished and given up to God, our worship. The things we do as church. The style of music, the patterns of worship, the places we gather. Whatever it is, it's the hardest thing in the world to do, to give up your world and to give it up to Jesus. Everybody wants to be saved, but not everybody is willing to give their life to Christ. And messenger after messenger comes that says, this world belongs to God. And we won't listen. And finally the sun comes 
and says this world belongs to God. But people want to keep their life so badly that they kill Jesus. Not just 2,000 years ago when they did it for real, but every day. People put Jesus to death in their own hearts and minds when they say, no, I'm not going to listen to Jesus. I'm going to hang on to my life. Jesus says that the kingdom will be given to the people who produce its fruit and that those who don't don't, will be broken to pieces. So the first two parables deal with people who say one thing and mean another uh, and then also with people who reject Jesus and try and steal God's word out from underneath him. Uh, And in the last parable, Jesus goes on to target another group of people who respond in a third way to Jesus. So uh, look at chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he sent to his servants, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Some people say one thing and mean another. Some people reject Jesus and try to steal God's world out from underneath him. And some people, Jesus says in this last parable, just try and rock up unprepared. There's this uh, king who prepares a banquet, he invites these guests, but the guests don't want to come. In fact, they're so set against coming that they kill uh, the messengers. Never not wanted to go to a party that badly uh, (laughs) that I killed the messengers. Uh, And hopefully you haven't either. But that's what Jesus says happens in this parable. uh, These people are so set against going so disinterested that they kill the messengers. It's kind of the same themes, isn't it, as we've had already in the other two parables. And yet this time what the king does is he goes out to invite other people. He invites everyone, anyone that they can find. He sends out his messengers, anyone he can find, good and bad, invite them along to the feast. And the people come. 
They come in great numbers. And yet, at the end of this parable, there's this kind of weird scene, isn't there, where the king comes in and there's someone there who's taken up the invitation but wearing the wrong clothes. He's turned up uh, not dressed for the wedding and he's tied up and he's thrown out into the darkness and into terrible torment. And it's a picture of, it's a picture of hell that Jesus is giving. So what's going on? Is everyone invited or aren't they? The invitation went out, good or bad, anyone can come along. And this guy takes up the invitation, he gets there, and yet he's thrown out. Is everyone invited or not? They are invited, but this parable is a warning. It's a warning lest we simply think those wicked Pharisees who said yes but lived a life of no and you know, did all those other evil things, uh, aren't they wicked? I've said yes, I've accepted the invitation, it's all good for me. Jesus is warning us that rejecting him leads to hell. So does accepting Jesus but being totally unprepared. See, this guy who accepted the invitation to the banquet seems to have done nothing other than just turned up. He got the invitation and he turned up at the last moment. Jesus doesn't say that he'd that this man had brought what wedding clothes that he had, you know, and they weren't very good. It's not like he he looked in the cupboard and all he had was the the 50-year-old hand-me-down suit and he'd put that on and he got to the wedding and the king had gone, well, good effort, but better luck next time. No, he just turned up. It's as though he didn't even bother to dress up for the occasion. It's as though he thought to himself, he got the invitation, he thought to himself, yeah, maybe I will go to that banquet. That might be good fun. And then he put it in his back pocket and didn't do anything about it until the time for the wedding ceremony came. Jesus is targeting that kind of nonchalant, casual response. And Jesus says, a casual response to him is no response at all. What are the signs of a casual acquaintance with Jesus? One sign, I think, of a casual acquaintance with Jesus is a casual acquaintance with prayer. How can you be deeply committed to Jesus and deeply acquainted with Jesus if you never spend time speaking with him? Another sign of a casual acquaintance with Jesus, I think, is a casual acquaintance with God's word. No one who's deeply interested in Jesus could be only cursorily interested in what Jesus has to say. Another sign of casual acquaintance with Jesus is a casual acquaintance with the church. If the church is the body of Christ, if the church is the arms and legs of Jesus, then how can you have a casual acquaintance with the church? It's like having a casual acquaintance with your leg. The only way you can have a casual acquaintance with your leg is if your leg isn't part of your body anymore and you only see it on the weekends. 
Now, a casual acquaintance with the church is a sign of a casual acquaintance with Jesus. And I wrote in the leaflet today about uh, the attendance at church over the last uh, few weeks. And I think, as I've prepared this sermon, I've thought to myself, it ought to give us pause for thought. That there seems to be so many people in our community that are only casually acquainted with the church. Another sign of a casual acquaintance with Jesus is a casual acquaintance with repentance. A life without repentance is a life without a crucified Messiah. And a life without a crucified Messiah is a life without Jesus. And last, another sign of a casual acquaintance with Jesus is a casual acquaintance with Christ-like love. A life without sacrificial and costly love is a life which has been untouched by God's love for us. You see, if we've really met with Christ, if we've really known the love of God for us in Christ, that love shapes us and drives us and compels us to love as we've been loved. And so if our love, if our life is only casually acquainted with that kind of life and love, then Do we know Jesus? You see, there's nothing casual about following Jesus. It's more than just a yes. Yeah, I think I'll do that. Yeah, that sounds like fun. And then you put the invitation in your back pocket until the day of judgment. If your response to Jesus has been casual up until now, then please admit that to God and confess it. Don't need to tell anybody else. But confess it to God and say, God, you know what? For all these years, I've just had you in my back pocket and hoped that things would turn out for the best. And ask God to really help you to follow Jesus. Don't be like that first son who said yes and didn't follow it up. Sorry, that was the second son. Be like the first son who said no but then turned around. In these three parables, Jesus is saying to us the truth is staring us in the face and Jesus wants to know how are you going to respond Let me pray.